When I was on vacation uh, last month, my wife and I <clears throat> had the opportunity to online view a, a closing session of a youth uh, conference. And this youth conference was focused on apologetics, equipping these young people to be able to know what they believe, why they believe it, and how to defend it. That it's a, there, there are good reasons and evidences for what they believe. And so that was the focus of the conference. And they closed with a, a guest speaker who was, was uh, I guess it would be a sort of a, a projection online. And, uh, and this guest speaker, uh, his task was to answer the questions of these high school, middle school students in this conference. About 400 young people gathered there. And they had different ones come to the microphone and ask the question. But one, one stuck out to me. One struck me as uh, particularly profound. Uh, this high school student, uh, I think he perhaps was a senior, came to the microphone and he said, Sir, this was his question, Sir, how would you define ultimate reality? And uh, that's, a, that's a pretty thought-provoking question for a, for a young man in high school. Don't ever assume that young people are just caught up with their iPhones and they're not thinking about life. Over the years working with youth, I know they think deeply. May not always express it, may not always be able to verbalize it, but they think deeply about issues of life. And this question really reflects much thoughtfulness. Sir, how would you define ultimate reality? And this scholar's response was equally profound, I believe. And he said this, after commending the young man for uh, the thoughtfulness of his question, he said, uh, you use two words, two critical words in your question. And those two words are ultimate and reality. And he said, there is only one ultimate reality, and that is God. He is the reality that explains all other reality. And then he went on to quote the late Christian philosopher and apologist Francis Schaeffer, who passed away back in the 80s, and uh, referred to the fact that Schaeffer used to use the, the phrase true truth, which almost seems ox, oxymoronic, uh, or truth with a capital T. In other words, we believe that there is such a thing as final, ultimate truth, and it can actually be known. Not every question can be answered, but we do believe that there is ultimate, true truth. And this speaker said we might, in, in the context of your question, sir, we might use the, the phrase real reality. God is the source of everything. He is the source of all reality. He is the ultimate reality. Now, I know there are, there are critics that would say, well, that's, that's sort of a simplistic answer. God is the source of everything. How easy can that be to say And uh, I would disagree. It's not a simplistic answer, but it is a simple answer because it points back to something that is either ultimately true or not ultimately true. God exists and God created all things as we've been singing about this morning, or he did not. There's only one or two options. You're here this morning because uh, you believe that he is the ultimate reality or you're seeking and wondering if he's the ultimate reality. But we affirm on a regular basis through our worship service that God is the source of everything. He is the creator of everything. He is the source of everything, and everything goes back to Him. And this truth has ramifications that touches every detail of life. And so, as I read through Scripture, I've seen over and over again this theme, this underlying 
theme of God being creator and because of him being creator, it touches on every other aspect of life. And so what I want to do this morning is take you on a bit of an excursion through scripture. So we'll be looking at a lot of scriptures. You can turn at, to the beginning, which would seem normal, Genesis chapter 1. And as you turn there, uh, let you know that what I want to do first is, is sort of take a big picture snapshot of what the scripture says about God as creator and being the source of all things. And then I want us to apply it to specific areas of life to say this truth, if it is believed, touches every single area of life in very practical, meaningful, life-changing ways. And we all know that this idea of creation and evolution is, is the big debate all the way back from 1853 when Darwin wrote his book. And it, it's had a profound uh, seismic impact on, on the world in general and on uh, our country and education and, frankly, on the church. And so what we're going to do is, is look at it in those two steps. First, the big picture, and then some specific application. Before we do, though, I think it might be worthwhile to ask a question, which I think is sort of an ultimate question. And it, it's one that John has asked before, but uh, it goes like this. Why are you here? First of all, why are you here at all? Why do you even exist? And then secondly, why are you here? Why are you here in a worship service this morning? Now, if God exists and he created everything, it makes sense that this would be where you would want to be. Worshiping is exactly what we ought to be doing. And singing and being reminded of and being driven to this truth, this life-changing, life-altering truth that he is the creator, that he is the source of all. This is exactly where we ought to be. And I think you'll see this come out as we look through these scriptures. So first, the big picture that he is the creator. He is the source of all. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. I want to look at some Old Testament statements and then a few New Testament statements as we take this big picture view. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. It is as familiar to you as John 3.16, as probably most anything you know, you can recall it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now that is an absolute statement. It is, it's either true or it's not true. There's no fudging on it. In the beginning, saying, meaning that there was a beginning, that the earth, the universe, has not always existed. It's not eternal, as as some in the scientific and evolutionary world, would, as they struggle with this question of why are we even here at all, uh, some suggest one possibility is that the universe itself is eternal. It's always been here, but science itself denies that because of the fact that the, the, you can measure time, you can see that the, the earth is, is, and the universe has a lifespan to it, it's winding down. And so... That's not a satisfying ultimate explanation, but this says there was a beginning, and in the beginning God, who pre-existed the beginning, created the heavens and the earth. See, this is the ultimate statement of this truth, that God is the source of everything. Now, again, the critics would say, uh, that's a religious person's cop-out. And uh, those of us in the academic, scientific world believe that it's too simplistic. 
And they would follow with this question. You say, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, where did God come from? And it's almost like that's the coup d'etat. You, you know, try answering that. Can you answer that? I can't. So then it pulls the rug out from under us, right? No. You see, Christians and believers in Scripture, believers in God as Creator, are not the only ones that have to answer that question. The question goes right back to those who believe that evolution is the source and the Big Bang is the source. You understand that it's debated in scientific circles, but the Big Bang is sort of what most have settled on as the origin of the universe, the beginning. Even they would say there was a beginning. And they would trace it back to what they would say would be the Big Bang, which would be a pinpoint in time and a pinpoint of energy that existed long, long, millions and millions, billions of years ago. And they would say within that pinpoint of energy, everything that we know now, that the actual essence of it was there. And in this massive explosion, we would call it almost like a nuclear explosion, it came apart and it has been traveling through space and organizing itself. And through natural selection, we are where we are today. And so what's the natural question to that? If they ask us, well, where did God come from? If he created it all, he's the beginning. Then our question would be, where did the little dot that had all that energy come from? What pre-existed it? And how did that tiny dot of energy explode? What created the explosion? And how has it organized itself on a macro and a micro level to the degree of balance and beauty and detail that we have today. They have to answer the same question. And we, we both are looking at evidence. One takes into the possib- in the possibility that there is a designer. The other denies that there is a designer. Don't want to spend too much time on this because this is not about apologetics. This is trying to drive us back to this incredible foundational truth that God is the source of everything. But some of you may have heard of Stephen Hawking. You may have even read some of his work. Stephen Hawking passed away in March of this year at 76. A remarkable man, really. A brilliant man. He uh, was trained at Cambridge and Oxford as, as a theoretical physicist. He was a professor of mathematics at Cambridge for a number of years, then became the director of the Center of Theoretical Cosmology, Uh, at Cambridge, and I believe that's the position he held when he passed away. I'm not sure, Uh, but he's a brilliant physicist. Uh, The unique thing about Stephen Hawking is is that he developed uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS, was initially confined to a wheelchair and had limited movement. Then he had a movement in one hand, and then before he died, he had movement in one muscle and a cheek. But yet this man, who could not move, could not speak verbally, and had to have other people take care of him and was limited to a motorized wheelchair and a computer for communication. He communicated, he wrote books, and he taught by moving a muscle in his cheek to activate his computer. You, you have to admire and respect anybody that can do that. But Stephen Hawking, though he had early on had a belief in God, abandoned that belief, through his study of science, and recently there was a book published, his last book, now published posthumously, Brief Answers to Big Questions. You may have read 
on the internet. There have been quite a few quotes from this book. But let me just give you a couple and make an observation or two. Hawking said this, my goal is simple, a complete understanding of the universe. Now that is profound. A complete understanding of the universe, why it is and why it exists at all. He says, I believe the simplest explanation about the universe is that there is no God. No one created the universe. No one directs our fate. And this leads me to profound, the profound realization that there's probably, and I'll underline probably, no heaven and no afterlife. You know, one of the interesting things is his funeral was held in a church and led by both academics and religious leaders. He went on to say, we have this one life to appreciate the grand design, underline grand design. One of his books is titled Grand Design. We have this one life to appreciate the grand design of the universe, and for that, he says, I'm extremely grateful. I've read a number of, uh, of atheistic evolutionists, uh, Richard Dawkins and Hitchens and some, and it is amazing to me to read their view of natural selection and evolution, and they use terms that almost personalize it, and there are terms of worship there in all. They're, they're humbled by what they see, but they attribute it to time plus chance and deny a designer. Now, think of this. Stephen Hawking had a disease that doctors in the medical field early on diagnosed because they knew how the human body should work and it's not working. And they treated him with medications over the years that were developed in, in very careful scientific methods. He was limited to a wheelchair, a very advanced mechanized wheelchair and a computer through which he communicated. And he had people all around him, including his first wife, who was a strong and still claims to be a strong Christian, his first wife, who helped him uh, through life. I, I don't want to sound simplistic in this, but I, to me it's a natural question. Who designed the wheelchair, the computer, the medicines? How did doctors know that his body was going wrong and something needed to be done? And all the laws that he studied to come to his conclusions as he studied and tried to comprehend the universe, he had to use laws to do it. For us to get to the moon, we have to know how the universe works, and it has to work according to laws. And to think that all this came from a pinpoint of energy that exploded, that's accidentally, over millions and millions and millions of years, has organized itself to the degree that it does, we would look at Stephen Hawking and his wheelchair and say, no way that can happen by chance and accident. It defies science itself and the laws. So when this very simple statement is read here, God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That makes all the difference in the world. It either is true or it's not true. And it impacts every area of life. Turn over to Psalm 104. Continuing with this big picture. Actually, I have several... Uh, verses on the screen, and if you just hold Psalm 104 just for a moment and turn back, or maybe if you want to, there are a lot of scriptures this morning, so if you want to mark them down, you can look them up later, but Psalm 90, verse 1 and 2 says this, this proclamation, this word of, of, of really affirmation, adoration, worship that Moses gives in this psalm, it says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place 
in all generations before the mountains were brought forth. In other words, you pre-existed the mountains, the universe. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You are the one from which everything comes. Before you, it says, had formed the earth and the world. You are the one who forms it. Psalm 95, 1 through 7, it says this, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation, which is what we were doing this morning through music. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to Him with psalms. Why? For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In His hand are the deep places of the earth. The, hills also, the heights of the hills also are His. The sea is His. Why? For He made it. And His hands form dry ground. You see, Hawkins had a profound appreciation for the magnificence of the universe. And he was grateful for it. He was grateful to have a life to be able to examine it. But who was he grateful to? We know that God is the Creator and we know who to thank. We know who to worship. And we don't confuse Him with the created universe and begin worshiping it. And then you come to Psalm 104. This could be called a creation psalm. It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, You are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty. Skip down to verse 5. You who laid the foundations of the earth, so this should not be moved. Skip down to verse 10. He sends the springs into the valleys. They flow among the hills. In other words, He created it. He controls it. Verse 14. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and the vegetation for the service of man. Verse 19, He appointed the moon for seasons and the sun knows it's going. And then you come back to this word of praise again down in verse 31. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in His works. You see, He's the source. He's the source of everything. That's what He claims and it's either true or it's not true. There's no middle ground. We can't fudge on that. How about the New Testament? Turn to, you don't have this on the, the screen, but uh, turn to John chapter 1, and then we'll go to Colossians. And again, because we'll be covering quite a few verses, you may want to uh, mark some of these down and examine them later on your own. John chapter 1. This connects Genesis chapter 1 and God with Christ in John chapter 1 in the Gospels. And this clearly is a statement of the deity of Christ, that God did not stand outside of His creation, but He came into it to experience what we experience, to know what we know, and to be the sacrifice for our sins. But this magnificent description of it, this big picture description of His deity and His work is in John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning. Again, in the beginning was the Word, another name for Christ, the Logos, and the Word was with God, but notice the Word also was God. He was in the beginning with God. Notice verse 3. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. And in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. You and I have life. We exist. We are here because God Himself is life and Christ is the physical expression, the magnificent expression, according to Hebrews 1, of God 
in flesh. That he is not only life and the source of it physically, but he is the source of it, as we'll see as we close in a few minutes, eternally. And Colossians chapter 1 says the same thing in different words in, in a letter that Paul is writing to the church at Colossae. Who was, they were struggling with who Christ really was and his deity and his work. And Paul writes this letter to this church and, and has this amazing statement, this all-encompassing statement. In chapter 1, verse 15 and 16, speaking of Christ, it says, He is the image of the invisible God. In other words, He's the physical expression of God. He's the firstborn over all creation. He has preeminence over it. And why is that? Because for by Him all things, not most things, not some things, but by Him all things were created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones By the way, this would include black holes that scientists like to study. Visible and invisible, whether they're thrones or dominions, principalities or powers, the physical things or the dominions, spiritual and physical uh, in the universe and in the world. All things were created, notice, through him and for him. So we are given this gift of creation and we're stewards of it and we're to steward it for him. This is not our territory, our stuff. It's his, and it's created both through him and for him. In John chapter 8, verse 58, we won't go there, uh, but you probably are familiar with the story where Christ is having something of a debate with some of the religious leaders of his day, and they were doubting whether or not he was really who he claimed to be. And he made a statement to these men that just knocked them back on their heels. He says, before Abraham was, I am. And they said, what in the world are you talking? Are you crazy? You're not yet 50 years old, and you're saying that you actually know Abraham? Come on. And it says they took up stones to stone him because they knew he was claiming deity. They knew he was claiming to be the self-existent, eternal God from whom all life comes. So the statements are made over and over again, and then... One, one or two other passages we have listed here, one in Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. And this reaches all the way into the future. As you know, Revelation is pointing us to the end time, pointing us into eternity. And so we began in Genesis, we get to Revelation, and what do you find? The same statement over again, and the, stay, the same uh, impetus to worship. Revelation four eleven. For you are worthy, O Lord... To receive glory and honor and power. And why? Why are we here this morning? Why do we worship? Why do we sing praises to Him? Why do we say He is worthy to receive honor and glory and power? And our attention, our submission, our obedience, our faith. Why? For you created all things. And by your will, they exist. And were created. You see, it keeps pointing back to the Creator. Revelation chapter 22, verse 13 closes where Christ is speaking. And he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the beginning and the end. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. He didn't say that, but, but, that, but he, he's making a statement that, that is all-inclusive. I am the beginning, and I'm the one who's going to bring it to a conclusion. I'm the Alpha the Omega. So he's worthy of worship. This, I think, basically 
It gives us the foundation and essence of worship. So that's the big picture. But we say, okay, we're with you there. We believe it. Uh, But what does that have to do with my Monday morning or maybe for you, your Sunday afternoon? What does it have to do with life? So let's think about him being the source of all things and specifically the source of specific help in certain areas and needs of life. So turn back to Psalms and go to Psalm 139, a magnificent psalm. If you haven't spent some time meditating on Psalm 139 in a while, I would suggest you go back to it. But it is profound. It is beautiful. I I preached on it. I memorized it. I go over and over. It's probably not a week that goes by that I don't spend some time thinking about this magnificent passage of Scripture. But what we're saying here is that Because God is the source, He is the creator and source of all things, we're saying that He is the source of purpose and meaning in life. It doesn't matter who it is, whether it's Stephen Hawking or you or me or this young man that asked the question about ultimate reality. We think about and we wonder about what is life really about? What does this brief life really amount to? In our deep personal thinking moments, uh, those profound questions come to us. And, and we, why do, does anybody have meaning and purpose? And what is my purpose? And what's the meaning of my life? Well, Psalm 139 is one of those passages that answers it. Uh, I want to start by going to the middle. Where in verse 13, where David is in this great song of praise to the Lord. He says, For you formed my inward parts. You covered me. In my mother's womb, a, a word that has the idea that God is putting, putting it together in the womb. By the way, we praise God for a new addition again this week. We, we grow our church so, slowly. We just have women give birth. The Buchans have a new baby and uh, a little Vivian. And, and this, little, this little gal just came on the scene this week, but she's, she's, she's existed you know, for over nine months. And the Lord's been weaving her together in the womb. And so this family gets to enjoy the results of God's creative handiwork. David says this about himself. It's true of any of us. Verse 14, he says, when he thinks about what God has done and putting him together, he says, I will praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works. And that my soul knows very well. You can actually look in the mirror and you may not always like what you see. I... I certainly don't. But you can actually honestly look in the mirror and say, Lord, marvelous are your works. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, or my substance, that's the essence of who I am, both physically and, and spiritually. It says, your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. In your book, they were all written, the days fashioned for me when there was yet none of them. In other words, he not only knew me, he knows my days and the length of my days. And then you can, once you know that, this is pointing to God as creator. When you know that, then go back to, to these incredible statements in verse 1 where he says, Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thoughts from afar. In other words, before I even think them. You comprehend. That is, you fully understand my path, my lying down. You're, you're, equating, you're acquainted with all my ways. And then a, this statement can be troubling. 
For there's not a word on my tongue, O Lord, but you know it altogether. And you can, you can continue to read in verse 7 through, through 12. It says there's nowhere I can go to get away from him. doesn't matter how far, how high, how low, how dark, how light. doesn't matter. He is there. And so he, he, he knows me thoroughly. He is with me omnipresently. And he made me wisely. And what he did was good. I may not always be terribly pleased, but what God did when he made you and when he made me was good. You see, this, this becomes the basis for having meaning individually and dealing with other people as those created in the image of God, as Genesis chapter 1 says. It was C.S. Lewis who says, you have never met a mere mortal. And so we're always dealing with eternal beings. We're not just dealing with somebody who's given us bad service at the, at the restaurant or at the auto repair shop. We're not, uh, we're not dealing with someone that we have the right to be short with just because they're not doing what we want them to do when we want them to do it. We're dealing with an eternal soul, an immortal person who's created in the image of God, and that person has value and dignity, even if they're like Stephen Hawking, limited to a wheelchair, who can only do, make his movements with a small muscle in his cheek. And see, this informs us in how we're to deal with people with whom we disagree, whether it be politically, religiously, or whatever. They're created in the image of God. They have value and they have meaning, and we need to have that mindset. And if we believe in the creation of God, and we believe that He made us as this Scripture says that He did, if we believe what Paul wrote to the Corinthians when he asked them three questions when they were wrestling with and comparing each other and, and really just being nasty to each other, he says, who makes you differ from one another? So he writes this letter to these people who weren't getting along. And he says, who makes you different? Not what makes you different, but who made you and makes you different from the other person? And then he says, what do you have that you did not receive? Is there anything? Can you, can you take out your notebook and write down anything on your list that is not a gift to you? Did you, do you have life because you created it? Do you have a job because you're the best qualified? Even if you were the best qualified, do you have it because somehow you have a right to it? You deserve it? Everything we have is grace-based. It is a gift of God. It's undeserved. What do you have that you did not receive? And then he finally asked this question. Now, if you did receive it, why do you boast or brag as if you didn't receive it? Why are you patting yourself on the back for self-achievement when the only reason you could do what you do is that God gave you life and gave the, the ability to do it? Who makes you different from anybody else? If you are different, God made you that way. That means he made him different or her different from you. They're all created in the image of God. So this is, this is the basis for what the founder said, and it's encapsulated in the, the founding documents when it says, all are created equal. Notice the critical word, created. They didn't say all evolved equally. And of course, some critics would say, well, that was before Darwin made his great discovery. Well, I beg to disagree. All are created equal. And they are endowed. In other words, something given to them from the outside. They're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. The word inalienable being uh, incapable of surrender or transfer or being alienated. That those come to us externally. We don't create them on our own. If you take an evolutionary view, 
What is the basis for dignity and value of another person? If we're all just part of this grand scheme of survival of the fittest, then it makes sense that the stronger would take advantage of the weaker because we want to survive. That's, that's the impetus. That's the, really, that's in the DNA. That's how we're made. That's how we're to survive. That's how we're to exist. If you really follow that mindset, that worldview and philosophy. So what, what value does another person have other than what we attribute to it, to that other person? We create it on our own, in other words. But this says, in our founding documents, the Declaration says, we're endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights. So He's the source of purpose and meaning. He's also the source of the design for both marriage and family. When you go back to Genesis again, again, it's a very familiar statement, but it's a critical statement when it says in Genesis chapter 1, Verse 26 and 27, God says, let us make man in our image. That's, uh, by the way, a passing reference to the Trinity. We won't go there, but that's a magnificent statement early on. It says, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the cattle over the earth. So God created man, verse 27, in his image. In In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. So maleness and femaleness with all the wonder and the beauty and the, 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 the problems that that brings, it was all God's design. It was His idea. It came from Him. And you start messing with that, you start trying to redefine it, then you're, you're not only messing with uh, what we understand God to have done in, in creating man and woman, but you're also messing with science. You're having to defy the laws of genetics, of DNA, of XY chromosome to redefine who male and female are and what marriage is about. Verse 28 of chapter 1 says, And God blessed them. The, this man and woman blessed them and said, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion. In other words, be good stewards and managers of what I have created and given to you as a gift. You are accountable to me. And that includes the way we deal with marriage, what we believe about it, how we think of it, how we deal with it, how we encourage one another or discourage one another in it. We go back to the design of the designer. We go back to the original playbook, so to speak. Either he did create man and woman, and he did create marriage, and it came from his mind and his heart. And Christ did affirm it in Matthew 19 when he was talking about the issue of marital relations and difficulties and divorce when he was asked the question. And he, what did he do? He went back and quoted Genesis 1 and 2. So Christ believed it. The resurrected Christ believed it. So we have God as the source for the design and the meaning of marriage. Does that mean it's easy? That, you know, well, okay, I, let's go back here and I take verse so-and-so, and I apply it, and that clears up all my family problems. No, because we're human, and we have Genesis chapter 3 in the fall, and, and, and the muck and the mix-up that that created. But God is with us, and he's never abandoned his design. So we go back to the source. He is also the source for our help when we're worried and fearful. Turn to Isaiah Chapter 40, this will be a familiar one to you, but it's important to see the connection to creation. 
in Isaiah chapter 40. And as you're going there, I want to quote another psalm because the psalms are so full of this idea of God as creator and as the source. And in Psalm chapter 121, verse 1, there's this marvelous verse that says, I will lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. We just sang about it. Two things about this, this verse, one personal, one historical. Psalm 121 is called a psalm of ascent. And Jerusalem was, the highest, was a city set on the highest point in that part of the world. If you've been there, you know that. And then the temple was set on the highest part, point of Jerusalem. And so when they would have their, their uh, feast days, they would travel up to Jerusalem. And as they went up, they would sing. And this was one of the songs that they would sing. They would, their eyes would automatically go up first to Jerusalem, then the temple. And, and they would say, Where does, uh, I will lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? It's not the temple. It's not Jerusalem. It's the one that they point to, the greater one, the one who made heaven and earth. The personal part is I've come from the western part of North Carolina and, and uh, lived for a while outside of Asheville in a little community called South Hominy. It was a cove back in the mountains. And I used to go visit my grandmother after I was older and married and had children and was in ministry. And I and I love to sit on her front porch and have coffee late at night and look up at the hills with the moon shining behind it. And I, it's just, it just accentuated the beauty of the mountains. And I, and I can remember sitting on the porch one time and thinking of this psalm and thinking of it the wrong way. I will lift up my eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. And, and I stopped there. I would, that was the old King James, by the way, quoting there. And, and, I would think of the Lord being sort of on a horse, you know, or having an army coming across the hills to come down to help. And that gave great encouragement. But then I began thinking about it and reading it further, and I understood that what it says, I will lift up my eyes to the hills when I see those hills, and I see the beauty of it, the majesty of it, the grandeur of it. Then I asked the question, where does my help come from? Where do I get help when I'm in need and worried or whatever? My help comes from the Lord who made those hills. Not the one who comes riding across the hill, but the one who actually made them. The maker of heaven and earth. And that gave you know, that much more sense of, uh, of the power that's available to me through the Lord and through faith. When I'm in a tight spot, when I'm worried, when I'm overwhelmed, as I wrote on the front of the bulletin. But Psalm chapter 40, I mean Isaiah chapter 40 is the ver- is the, it ends with this well-known passage, those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They'll run and not be weary, walk and not faint. You're familiar with it. But perhaps you haven't connected it to the context where it says in, in verse 27 of the, of the chapter, it says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord. My just claim is passed by are passed over by God. In other words, the Lord doesn't even know, doesn't even care what situation I'm in, what injustice I'm experiencing. And so these questions are asked to drive them back to the source. Have you not known? Really, come on. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, Yahweh, creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary, his understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak and to those who have no 
might he increase his strength. Even the youth on their own will faint and be weary. Young men may utterly fall, but those who wait on the Lord, he'll renew their strength. The creator of heaven and earth is at his power is available to us when we're in those situations where we're worried sick and we don't know what's going to happen. We are overwhelmed by the things we see going on around us in the world, by the things we see going on around us in our community or in our family. And frankly, there's a lot that overwhelms us that goes on in our own hearts, right? The Lord has not overlooked it. He hasn't forgotten. And His wisdom He knows and He's at work. Go to Him. Trust Him. The source of your help and worry and fear. He's also the source of comfort in suffering. Comfort in suffering. I'm not going to turn there because it's, it's just there's too much involved, but uh, I want to read a quote from uh, Philip Yancey who has written on pain and suffering probably as much as any author, any Christian author. And uh, he was quoted in, a, in an article I read. Let me just read to you what he says about the book of Job and Job's suffering book of Job probably is one of the first books of the Bible, parallel with the time of Abraham in Genesis. So early on, this question of suffering and human suffering and why was being wrestled with. And so here, here's Yancey's quote. It says, We can find nearly every argument in the book of Job as to why there is pain in the world, but the arguing never seems to help Job very much. His is a crisis of relationship more than a crisis of doubt. His question is, can I trust God? Job Job wants one thing above all else, an appearance of the one person who can explain his miserable miserable condition. He wants to meet God face to face. Eventually, Job gets his wish. God shows up in person in Job 38. You can read about it in verse 1. And interestingly, he times his entrance with perfect irony, just as Job's friend Elihu is expounding on why Job has no right to expect to see God. No one, not Job, nor any of his friends, is prepared for what God has to say. Job has saved up a long list of questions, but it is God, not Job, who asks the questions. And in verse 3 of Job 38, he says, Brace yourself. Brace yourself like a man. I will ask questions of you. You answer me. And then brushing aside 35 chapters worth of debates on the problem of pain with Job and his three friends... God plunges into a majestic poem on the wonders of the natural world. In God's speech, He defines the vast difference between God and all His creation and one simple man. His presence spectacularly answers Job's biggest question, and that is, is there anybody out there? And yes, there is. And yes, God cares. And we know how the book of Job ends. And Job... And his response says, surely I spoke things that I didn't understand. I tried to explain things basically that were too wonderful for me. If God is God and he is the source of everything and the whole universe came from him and you and I come from him, can we ever expect to fully explain God or the problem of pain and suffering? No, we can't. And that's what one of the first books of the Bible started dealing with. The whole scripture deals with it. He is the source of our help, our comfort when we're dealing with pain. He is the source of ordinary life. And we're going to look at just one or two things and and wrap it up here. But uh, this is a magnificent statement in Acts chapter 17 where Paul is dealing with a group of people who are either atheistic or religious skeptics who uh, are polytheists. And he's trying to 
find common ground with them so he can share the hope of Christ, just as our pastor is doing with those folks over in, in Liberia. And this is what Paul said when he saw them with all their statues to the gods of the world at that time and then one to the unknown God. Here's what Job says. I mean, Paul says, he says, I was passing through. I noticed your objects of worship, one to the unknown God. He says, therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, he is the one I want to proclaim to you. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life and breath and all things. And he made from one blood every nation of men. Notice we share a common blood. We may have different ethnicities, but we have a common blood. It says he placed them on the face of the earth, determined their pre-appointed times and boundaries of their dwelling so that they would seek the Lord and hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from any of us. He's spoken in creation, revealed himself. Then this verse, 28, in him we live and move and have our being. Every single ordinary day is lived Coram Dale before the face of God in His presence if He is Creator and source of all things. So ordinary in Him we live, we move, and have our being. Therefore, He could say in 1 Corinthians, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Why? Because He's the source. You and I wouldn't be here and have what we have if not. So ordinary life, let me be aware of the treasure you are. God is interested not just in the big events in Christianity or the Christian life. He's interested in ordinary life, people that are yielded, that will walk with Him in faithfulness in the ordinary, mundane, routine, painful, stressful, irritating. He wants to express His life. He wants to express the source of life through us to others. I want to quote to you in closing my favorite verse, the verse that sealed it for me back in 1968. I was struggling with death and life. I was in line to be sent to Vietnam. I knew I could be sent over and get killed in war. I had friends that had, that had happened. And so I was really just struggling and, and, and asking God for answers. And that's when I went to a youth meeting and, and a fellow sat down on a stool and said, before you leave here, you can be 100% sure of going to heaven. And he went on to explain what John so magnificently does every week, that we, we, have, we have a problem. God is righteous and holy and we're not. Uh, we, have, we do not have a righteousness that we need. And then we have a debt to pay because of our sinfulness that we can't pay. But Christ entered the picture. God in flesh, the one who created heaven and earth. And he took death on himself and paid it the penalty so that you and I could be forever freely forgiven and be given a righteousness that we do not have on our own and a payment for our sins being made that we could not deserve and could not make. It's magnificent. The God of the universe did that. And then he says in, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, after saying that He is life, Christ Himself is life, but He gives eternal life. He says, These things I have written unto you who would believe on the name of the Son of God. That simple act of absolute conviction and persuasion that He paid it all and that my dependence is ultimately only on Him. These things I've written to you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know. That you may know 
Not hope, guess, wish, try, wait. You may know that you have eternal life from the everlasting God who is the source of all. I pray that you have that today. If not, I encourage you to place your faith in him and him alone. Let's pray. Father, we're humbled by the greatness of who you are, the magnificence of your creation, the revelation of your word in writing, preserved for us to test, to think about, to study, to find evidence and basis for believing. We thank you for the revelation of yourself in flesh through Christ, that he fulfilled prophecy, that he lived a life that can be traced in history. He died and he rose again as a very fact of history. And we can know this. And Father, we worship you today through the resurrected Christ because you have given us life and promised us eternal life through faith in him. We thank you. We're humbled by it. We worship you today because you're worthy. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.